Amen. Well, good morning to you. Uh, if you're here for the first time, know that we're uh, so glad that you're with us today. We, we truly believe uh, that your, your, your life matters, uh, that we, uh, we value you. We want to see, uh, see lives changed. Uh, we want to reach the world. And so, God, uh, guys, I'm just uh, so thankful um, for what all God's been doing. You know, we've been going through the book of James through the summer. On our Wednesday gatherings, if you guys are missing out on that, if, uh, if you haven't been, so I want to encourage you guys to attend that. Um, but today we, we're, we're in John 16. Uh, we're in the upper uh, room, and we've been continuing to see Jesus teach on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this, in, in this teaching, Jesus is preparing uh, his disciples for life after his death. And in it, we've, uh, we've seen more of a circular style of teaching. Uh, where Jesus continues to circle around multiple different ideas, uh, showing how all these different ideas are all connected. Uh, we've seen Jesus speak and model what it looks like to serve one another and to love one another. And we've seen Jesus talk multiple times on prayer uh, and the Holy Spirit and joy and the importance on abiding in Jesus. You know, this, this summer we've gone through this teaching, and you know, I have personally been so challenged by these texts. Like God has been working in my own heart uh, just on just thinking about prayer and how God prunes us uh, and the importance of deep friendships and just how important abiding in Christ is. You know, and then last week, uh, we saw the hard truth that those who abide in Jesus will be hated by the world, um, which I think we can agree is not the most fun thing. Like it's not really one of those teachings that just kind of warms the heart, you know, and excites us. Well, at the same time, we need to hear those things and be reminded that following Jesus, it comes with a cost. And the reason Jesus told us these things is to both prepare us and to also to comfort us. You know, multiple times, Jesus has told these disciples, fear not, let not your heart be troubled. Peace I give to you, peace I leave with you. I will send you the helper of the Holy Spirit. And so these disciples, they're, they're, they're troubled, they're worried, they're fearful because they know that Jesus is about to die. Like half the city is trying to kill Jesus in this moment. And these disciples are deeply associated with Jesus. And then last week, as we saw, uh, he told them the honest truth that the world has hated him and they're also going to hate them and it's kind of like, well, gee, thanks. Like, that's super fun and encouraging and uplifting. Thanks for the positive, encouraging talk. But when we've seen, but what we've seen over and over again is that Jesus is just super honest with us about real life. Like, he never said that this life will be full of comfort. He never said our life will get easier because we follow Jesus. No, he just tells us that he is our hope and our guide and our source of joy in the midst of really hard things. And as we saw over the last three weeks in John 15, Jesus showed us that the key to this life is remaining in Christ. It's abiding in Jesus. Just by being in the word and in prayer and allowing the community around us to feed our hearts and souls and to remind us of our hope. But what we started to see last week was Jesus was beginning to turn his disciples from themselves and he begins to turn their hearts and eyes and their attention out into the world. And I find this so interesting as Jesus uses this teaching as a means of comfort for weary souls. Because what we'll begin to see Jesus do today is to somewhat kind of lift up their heads in a way telling them kind of like, look up, look out. I mean, I just, I just imagine the disciples kind of with their heads down, like worried and fearful, just feeling beat down. 
I mean, Jesus just told them they will be hated by the world. I mean, look what Jesus says in verses four to six in John 16. It says, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And, and so again, I just imagine these disciples with their heads down, just kind of shoulders hunched over, overwhelmed with sorrow and sadness, just beat down and discouraged. And I just imagine Jesus with his words, just kind of like nudging their chin up and saying, just look up. So like, I see that sorrow has filled your heart, but I want you to see something. I want you to see something incredible. Like I've called you to something way bigger than you could ever dream possible. Like, yes, this is hard. Your sorrow is real, but look up. Christian, I don't, I don't know what you came in with today. But Jesus, through his word, calls us to look up, to look up, to pick up our chin and lift up our head and to see the power and the calling that God has set before us. Like if you're following Jesus and you need hope today, I pray that you'll listen. Because Jesus is telling us today to look up and to remember our calling, to remember our purpose and to see what Jesus has set before us. And what I think we'll see is that what Jesus has set before us is way bigger than we could do on our own. That we need the helper of the Holy Spirit to go before us, which leads us to our main idea. The Holy Spirit is essential to the mission of God. And I know right off the bat, like that doesn't seem like the direction that like, would drive us to hope. <laughs> uh, but I want you to hang with me because we'll get there. Like we've got a bit, bit of groundwork to lay and some teaching to do before we get there. And I, I want you to imagine we're kind of building a bonfire today. Like we're going to labor to lay down the logs and these big limbs. And in the end, we're going to try to light the fire. And I pray it just will warm our hearts for the days ahead. And so let's start laying down the logs of this bonfire. And so again, our main idea, we say that the Holy Spirit is essential to the mission of God. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page here, because when we say the mission of God, we're talking about God's grand purpose in the world. And maybe you've been around church for a while and you've heard this. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times or maybe you've been a church or around church or, or maybe church really isn't your thing. Uh, and maybe you've never heard this before. But when we talk about the mission of God, we're talking about the entire story of the Bible. You know, we often view uh, the Bible as a bunch of stories, but in that we can easily miss that it's one big grand story. And no, it's not a fairy tale, a collection of fairy tale stories, but it's real life. Like this is a real life uh, story that involves you and me. We could easily say that the Bible shows us the purpose of the world. But in short, the mission of God is the story of the Bible that tells us that God created the world and that in his creation, he created people and he created people for a purpose of knowing God and being with God and having a relationship with God. He created people in his image to reflect his glory. But very soon after God created humanity, the very first humans disobeyed God, Adam and Eve. They, they sinned and they disobeyed God. And what I want to make sure we get, uh, we get this today. Like this, again, this is not just some far off story that was way back then, but this is the beginning of an ongoing struggle that has been happening inside of the hearts of humans since the beginning of time. And the ongoing struggle is that we all want to be in charge of our own kingdoms. Like, we don't want to obey God. No, we want to obey ourselves. 
which is what we call sin. Like disobeying God is what the Bible calls sin. And from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end, God's grand purpose and mission has been to redeem and restore and rescue people all over the world back to himself. And so if you're here today, maybe you're, you're watching online. What we need to know today is that God is pursuing you. Like, just, just listen to that. God is pursuing you. God is on a relentless pursuit for all people all over the world to come back to him and to worship him, which means he's pursuing both you and me. And what Jesus is beginning to show his disciples is that the Holy Spirit that he's been talking about, kind of circling around, uh, will, will work through his disciples and us to then draw people back to himself. Like God is pursuing you and me and the rest of the world through the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so what we need to understand as we look at this passage is that this grand rescue mission that Jesus has slowly been kind of revealing, it's way bigger than you and me. In fact, yes, God has entrusted this mission to us, but let's be clear, we can't do this on our own. We need the helper of the Holy Spirit alongside uh, on, on our mission that he's entrusted to us. And so today we're going to go through this text and we're going to see very clearly how the Holy Spirit draws people back to himself, seeing more of what the Spirit does and why the Spirit is so important and how, also how, how the Holy Spirit gives us hope. You know, we've got three points today to help us wrap our heads around this text. We'll see, uh, number one, the advantage of the Holy Spirit. We'll still see number two, the activity of the Holy Spirit. And then number three, hope for the days ahead. And then that second point, uh, we'll see six different things the Spirit does. This is right in line with this whole Upper Room series. Six different things the Spirit does in point two when God is drawing someone to himself and also uh, in the life of a Christian after conversion. And hopefully as we lay down uh, these logs in point one and two, in our third point, we'll be able to see why this, so, this is so hopeful uh, as we kind of light our bonfire. And just as a reminder again, we saw last week that Jesus, he just told his disciples that they will be hated by the world. And then as we read, just read in verse 6, they're then filled with sorrow. And so in our text today, Jesus is responding to their sorrow by teaching them about the Holy Spirit. Jesus just comes and shows them that, yes, there is sorrow, but in that he has called us to something unbelievably incredible that will make those struggles and sorrows almost seem like a little annoying gnat that keeps coming up at us. Like, we're, like an annoying gnat that we're, we're, that's kind of bothering us while we're looking at a beautiful sunset setting over the Grand Canyon. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, yes, there will be annoying gnats in our life, like being hated by the world, but don't miss the beauty of the sunset by being consumed by the gnat. Christian, don't miss what Jesus has called us to. Don't forget your purpose. Church, yes, we will be hated by the world for following Jesus, but let's not miss that God has called us to take part in a grand rescue mission that involves the redemptions of all people all over the world. And what we'll see is that one of the many needed medicines for a weary soul is a renewed purpose and vision. It's to remember our greater purpose. Yes, there will be struggles and hardships and persecution, and we're engaging in a spiritual battle, but guess what? In all of these things, God has called us to be royal ambassadors, full of the Holy Spirit's power, to be light in the darkness, to bring hope for the weary, and to see God restore and put back together that which is broken. You know, there's something just very incredibly restorative in life when we can look up and see the bigger picture to take our attention off the gnat and to see the beauty of the sunset that God has set before us. Yes, there's a time and place 
for everything. There's a time to grieve and lament and experience sorrow and loss. And yes, God is with us in those things and heals our hearts and souls. But church, we do, y'all, we, as a church, we do everything we can for one another to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to care for one another. Like we're a broken church for broken people. Brokenness is just the norm here. But then we know what God does. Like after he sits with us and weeps with us, he looks at us and says, lift up your head. <laughs> Look up what I've called you to. Take heart, take courage, run with passion because I'm redeeming the world. The peace and joy and courage that comes from abiding in Jesus, it begins to fully flourish when our purpose is remembered and when hope is realized. Well, there's just something incredibly restorative to weary souls when hope is introduced and remembered. You know, over the summer, <laughs> uh, our house has become a uh, total animal house. I know this past week we got a baby kitten named Twix. Cute little thing. Uh, a couple months ago, we got a hamster named Maple. And you know, that hamster in our house has become a, a total uh, escape artist. Like it keeps getting out of the cage. Like Maple the hamster she, uh, escaped once several weeks back and ever since uh, it's become relentless in its pursuit of getting out of the cage. And this past week it, uh, it got out again. It's actually still out now. I don't know where it is. Um, <laughs> but, but I, try, I tried to release the kitten on it to let it help, but it didn't help at all. Okay, so... Um, Y'all can pray for, pray for us. But I bring this up because as I was writing this sermon, watching all this stuff play out, uh, it reminded me of an illustration uh, of a study that was done on rats back in the 1950s uh, by a professor of John Hopkins University. Oh, I don't, that's just kind of what this led us to. So, but in this study, it was known that rats were known to be really good swimmers. And so the, the guy who did the study, he placed some of those good swimming rats, rats in buckets of water and when they realized uh, that they had no chance of getting out of the bucket, these rats, they just gave up and ended up drowning within a matter of minutes. But in the other group of rats, right before they drowned, he would pick them up, giving them a little hope uh, that they would make it out. Like he would kind of give them some hope. And you know what those rats that had a little bit of hope, you know what they did? They ended up staying alive and they ended up fighting for days. Like they showed a level of incredible endurance in sustaining their struggles simply because they had hope that just maybe they could make it out. Which reminded me of uh, our Maple's relentless pursuit, pursuit of freedom to get into the abyss of the Hovis house. But I bring this up not because I want to drown a rat, but because in this study, the only difference between the two groups was hope. One group saw they couldn't do it and died, and the other group, with a little bit of hope, they endured for days. And what Jesus is doing with his disciples in our text today, right after he tells them they will be hated and dragged out of synagogues and killed, Jesus gives them hope. He gives them a vision of something better. He shows them the beauty of the sunset with what they'll, uh, with what they'll gain in the Holy Spirit in the days ahead. So look at verse 7. This is what he says right after he sees that their hearts are filled with sorrow. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, nevertheless, saying, yes, I see that your heart is filled with sorrow. But guess what? I'm going to send you something that will be better for you than me being here. 
Like, I'm going to send to you a helper saying this helper of the Holy Spirit is to your advantage, showing us number one, the advantage of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to point out that to them at this dinner at this time, this may not have been, have been seen as super hopeful uh, because they likely didn't understand all of this. But as we look at the letters of some of the disciples that were there at this dinner that were written later, like Peter, for example, when he talked about how we have a living hope in 1 Peter, we see that they later understood this more clearly. But at this time at this dinner, I just imagine them kind of being confused by this because Jesus said it is to their advantage that he leaves because if he doesn't leave, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come. But when Jesus does leave, the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will be better for them. Like we talked about this a few weeks ago when Jesus first brought up the Holy Spirit back in chapter 14. And as we look at this again, I think we find this, we can find this very interesting that Jesus said they were better off that we're better off with the Holy Spirit in our life than we would be if Jesus was sitting right next to us in the flesh, like talking to us. If Jesus, didn't, if Jesus was talking to us and teaching us and counseling us and answering, answering all of our questions person to person. And I don't know about you, but that's not my natural thought to think the Spirit in us is better than Jesus being with us. Like naturally, I would tend to think it would be better that I'd have Jesus with me. Like just personally with me to eat uh, dinner with me and to uh, take me fishing so I could actually catch a fish. And to have him with me at weddings and on picnics, multiplying food. I mean, uh, when we read the Gospels, those things that we see uh, Jesus do, like turning water to wine and multiplying bread and fish and healing people, it seems like it would be way better for him to be with us as the person of Jesus than us having the Spirit of God like we have right now. But what Jesus just told us is that no, it's better and to our advantage that we have the Spirit of God with us and not the person of Jesus. And New City, y'all, we can take, we, there's a lot of things that this could lead us to and make different conclusions that would be really fun to explore. But the one conclusion that I want us to see before we get to what the Spirit does is for us to just contemplate the value of the Holy Spirit. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often just don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. We struggle to see its value because it's not overtly tangible, like we can't necessarily see it and touch it. But what our text shows us today is that the Holy Spirit with us is better than Jesus being with us. And y'all, that's a really, really big claim. That's what Jesus said. Like what we have today as Christians is better than what the disciples had at this dinner with Jesus. And when we hear that, this should really challenge us to think about the Spirit's presence in our life. Like this should fuel us with hope to endure, knowing that all those that proclaim Jesus as Lord and believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, we have supernatural power at our disposal and have an incredible counselor with us and inside of us that is better than us having dinner with Jesus. And what Jesus begins to show us today is that what those supernatural powers look like and how the helper and counselor of the Holy Spirit works. Now, I understand as soon as I say that we have supernatural power, we think of like walking on water and multiplying food, and turning water to wine. And I'm not saying the Spirit still can't do that today. God could totally do that if He wanted to. But what I am saying is that what Jesus shows us today about the Spirit, it's better than that. Jesus walked on water, turned water to wine, healed the sick, raised a dead man to life. And He's saying today that what we're about to see, it's better than that. Yes, the, the miracles of Jesus are cool, and we should pray for miracles, and they have a place and a purpose. But we need to understand is that Jesus did not come down to this earth for the purpose of performing miracles to wow us. No, he came to this earth to turn the hearts of his people back to, back to him. Like the whole purpose of all the miracles of Jesus, as we've seen throughout the entire book of John, were to simply show that he was God. 
They validated that he was God for the purpose of people believing that he was who he said he was. God's purpose is not to perform cool miracles. No, God's purpose is for his people to worship him. So get this, Jesus had to perform miracles to validate that he was who he says he was. But what Jesus is about to show us in these next few verses is that the Spirit of God will work in the lives of people, people maybe more effectively than Jesus did when he walked this earth. And so what we must then ask is how will this happen? Like how will the Holy Spirit turn the hearts of God's people back to himself? And so this is when we continue to do the hard work of laying down the logs of the bonfire. Look at what uh, Jesus says in verse 8 about the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, which leads us to number two, the activity of the Holy Spirit. As I said earlier in this point, I want to point out six things that the Spirit does that turns the hearts of God's people back towards worshiping God. And as we walk through this, uh, each one of these points, I want us to think back to our own conversion and how God was working in our own hearts before we became Christians. Because I know for me personally that at, at, each, at each of these points, they each played a major part in my own life, both before and after I responded to Jesus. And the first is letter A, the Spirit brings conviction to the world. So the Spirit of God will bring conviction to the world. That's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, which are our next three ideas uh, that we'll get to. But what I want to point out here before we get to those is that God's heart is for people all over the world at all times. And let's remember Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world from where we are right now. So this kind of includes us when he says that, like we're the world. But also conviction of the Holy Spirit, it does not discriminate. It does not have a bias. If, if it does not choose those whom have more good than bad, it, does not deduce, it, is, it is not deduced to Christian homes or those who attend church. Like it does, uh, conviction from the Holy Spirit does not care if you follow Buddha or Muhammad or Vishnu or if you're a devout atheist. It does not care if you're a womanizer or a criminal or a young child. When the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, it's going to have its way and it's going to do its thing. So the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon people all around the world, like in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in Africa, Asia, in the Middle East, and it comes on people like a mighty rushing wind, whether people want it or not. And so when you become a Christian, like you likely weren't seeking out conviction, but it happened. But then we need to ask, what specifically is the Spirit convicting the world of? Look at the next verse. Look at verses 9 more specifically. Jesus says, uh, the conviction will con come concerning sin because they do not believe in me, showing us, letter B, the Spirit convicts us of sin. And I want to just say here that this is both for those Jesus is drawing to himself before conversion and also after conversion. And what we need to understand is that if a person does not see the weight of their sin, they will not understand their need for Jesus. Unless someone knows they need a Savior, then they'll never call out to a Savior. And what the Bible tells us is that our sin has separated us from God. Just one sin separates us from God. There's not a person on this planet that can enter into heaven and be with God and know God because of the sin in their life. Like some people experientially know this and understand the weight of their sin and often uh, others need to be shown how our, our sin affects them to see its weight. But the point is our sin and disobedience, our rebellion against God, in order for us to see Jesus clearly, the Spirit of God will first bring the conviction of sin. 
Like there's a weight and an understanding of sin and what it does and how it affects us and how it's separated us from God. You know what we need to know about this is the spirit that brings conviction. It's, it's the spirit that brings conviction, not people. Yes, God uses people as a tool in the process, but when we speak of Jesus and share the gospel and talk about sin and what, it's, uh, what it does, and God uses that to then bring conviction to a person by the Holy Spirit. And you know, conviction is a powerful thing. When a person is under the conviction of the Spirit concerning their sin, that is evidence that the Spirit of God is working in their life. Again, in order for a person to first come to Christ, they need to first see their sin. And even for the Christians still today, the Spirit still brings conviction to our life concerning our sin. And we'll continue to do so until we see Jesus face to face. And Jesus is showing us here that the Spirit convicting us and others of our sin, it's better than Jesus sitting at the table with us. Like the Holy Spirit wrestling inside of our hearts, with our hearts. It doesn't end at the dinner table or after a conversation. No, it does not stop. Again, the Spirit working in the world, it's better than Jesus walking in the world. And one more thing here, just to point out. One of the most dangerous places to be is when our hearts become cold and hardened to sin and just totally unaffected by it. When that happens, it's evidence that we've squelched out the Spirit in our life. The Spirit of God was not desi- was, was designed, the Spirit of God was designed to be like a burning flame inside of us. But when the Spirit of God is squelched by ignoring the conviction of sin, it's like taking a fire blanket and putting over the flame of the Spirit in our life. We're on the flip side, responding to the Spirit's conviction and turning from sin and turning towards God. Like that's evidence of the Spirit's work. The Spirit convicts the world. That's what we saw in our first one. The Spirit convicts concerning sin. And look at next at verse 10. Concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Seeing, let her see, the Spirit convicts us for righteousness. So the Spirit of God doesn't only convict us of sin for the wrongdoing and disobedience and to convict us uh, to walk away from sin, but the Spirit also convicts us and moves us to walk towards what is right to walk towards righteousness. And we see here that the Spirit is carrying the baton of what Jesus started. So when Jesus entered the world, he gave us a model of what is right, but now that Jesus is gone, the Spirit, with the direction of the Word of God, leads us to know what is right. Again, this is both for the believer and the unbeliever. And when an unbeliever uh, is exposed to seeing what is right and true, they're drawn to it. When a person is drawn to following the Lord and walking in the way of the Lord, that's the Spirit's work. The Spirit doesn't just turn us away from darkness, but He also draws us towards the light. The Spirit turns us away from the old life and turns us towards a new life in Christ. When God convicts us of sin and then changes our desires and moves us towards what is right and good, that is the Spirit working in our life. And when we think of these things, this is incredibly hopeful because it shows us that change is possible. It shows that God can take criminals and restore them. It shows us that God can take rebels and redeem them. It shows us that our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors and us are truly able to fight sin and change. Like total radical and complete life transformation is possible. And why? Because the Spirit convicts us of sin and also convicts us towards righteousness. He changes our desires to move away from sin and then towards what is right. Does it always happen in an instant? No. I wish it did. But it doesn't, does it happen? Yes. 
And how? Because the Holy Spirit convicts us towards what is good and right. And look at what he says next in verse 11. We won't spend a lot of time here, but I do want to look at it concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged, showing us, letter D, the Spirit convicts in judgment. So not only does the Spirit convict the world and sin and what is right, but the Spirit also makes clear that judgment is real. Well, this one's heavy and hard. But the Holy Spirit makes it clear that good and evil, they exist, and heaven and hell are real, and that Satan will be judged. Every person on the planet will be judged for their actions, including you and me. Every person on the planet will face God the judge, and he will either say, I know you or I don't know you. And the verdict is totally dependent on whether a person trusted in Jesus in, his, in this life or not. And the Holy Spirit will bring, brings conviction and an urgency towards this judgment. This is just what the Spirit does. Look what Jesus says next for our last uh, two subpoints here. Look at verses 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you that the things, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to point out, as we continue to lay down these logs of this bonfire, is that letter E, the Spirit reveals truth. So the Spirit convicts the world, the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And here we see that the Spirit leads us to truth. And so get this. When we understand the Bible and we see it as true, that's the Spirit's work. When, you, when a person responds to the gospel and sees it as true, that's the Spirit's work. When a person hears the preaching and teaching of the word and believe it, believes it to be true, that's the Spirit's work. But what is, and what is beautiful about this is that each follower of Christ has the Spirit revealing truth to us. So on the flip side of this, when we're blinded to the truth and when truth is distorted, that's not the Spirit, that's the enemy. The Spirit reveals truth. We need to ask, how do we know if something is of the Spirit or not? Like, how is it true or not? Like, how do we know whether a teaching is true or not? Well, we have the Word, but we also look at verse 14 again. Jesus says, He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And just as a little, another little sidebar here, I just want to point out quickly from this verse, he says, he will glorify me, showing us that the Spirit's a person. Like the Spirit's not a, a mode or a different God or a power. No, the Spirit is a person. But what we need to ask is how do we know if something uh, is of the Spirit or not? Like how do we know if a teaching is true or not? Like if, well, if it's in the Bible, yes. That's true. But uh, how do we know if a person or a people are filled with the Holy Spirit? The last thing here about the Holy Spirit does is letter F, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. So how do we know if a teaching is a Christian teaching? It makes much of Jesus. How do we know if a church is full of the Holy Spirit? Well, it makes much of Jesus. How do we know if a person is truly a Christian and has the Holy Spirit in their life? Well, they glorify Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. That's evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life. When a person believes in Jesus and they're convicted of sin and convicted towards righteousness, they understand judgment, they see what is true, and they glorify Jesus. Like that is the evidence of the Spirit's work, both before conversion and after conversion. And y'all, there's so much to say for each of these points. But I just want to stop and kind of zoom out for a few minutes and ask again, like why is it better 
that the Spirit does these things. But even more so, as we look at our last point, why does this provide us with hope? And before we get to that last point, let's ask, like, why are these things better than Jesus being with us? And as we've already said and seen with all of these things, we can see that true life transformation is possible. And it's not just for us, but it's for others. These things are better because no matter where we are, God can bring conviction and change to all people all over the world, like at the same time. Like God, through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin and my wife of her sin at the same time, while also simultaneously pointing us to what is true and right. New City, these things are better because it gives us, number three, hope for the days ahead. Like when we see that change is real and possible in our marriages and relationships and family members and friends and on our campus and in our city and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our own life, it fuels us with hope. When we see that the Holy Spirit is able to convict us of sin and move us towards righteousness, it brings us hope that sin can be defeated and that total restoration is possible. When we see that the Holy Spirit is present, we see that the entire we see that entire communities can be radically changed and transformed. Knowing that the Spirit is alive and active, it gives us hope that nothing is impossible, that our lost friends can come to Christ and that those that we love and us can be re- released from the change of addiction and strongholds and emotional clouds. Like knowing that the Holy Spirit is alive and active gives us the confidence as we pray to plead and to know that God is able and powerful and willing to do crazy big things. Like when we see, like we've seen here, a bunch of people baptized in a day, like just seeing a a visible picture of the Holy Spirit working, we can be hopeful that he can do way more than that. Like when we see a movement on the campus, like we saw last year, we can have hope that he can do far more than that. Maybe doubling it or tripling it. When we see people from all different nations come to Christ, we can have hope that he'll do it again and again. When we see people healed and restored and begin to flourish again like we've seen, we can be hopeful that he'll do it again and again and again and again. You know, it gives us the confidence to ask bold, crazy prayers, believing in faith, that the Spirit in an instant can take the most far-off person we know, believe in Jesus, respond in faith, and be totally transformed. Like we can have an unshakable confidence that God can save people out of the pits of bondage and radically change their life and see them sent back out with zeal on fire for Jesus with mission and urgency. And we know that the Holy Spirit is drawing people. We can again have an unshakable confidence in evangelism when we engage in missions and church planting around the world. All the hope of the Holy Spirit working takes our weariness and lifts up our eyes and calls us to see all that God is doing. Church, the hope of an active Holy Spirit, it emboldens us to get out of our fear and worry and concern of being hated by the world and to run with zeal and passion towards truth and righteousness, knowing that God can do the impossible. New New City, God has called us into a grand rescue mission that sees the overlooked, called into a royal priesthood that calls the marginalized into mission, 
This sees orphans adopted, marriages restored, the homeless fed, prisoners become church planters, prostitutes become prayer warriors. Y'all, we're a part of a mission and purpose that is global and worldwide that God has called us into to take part in as his royal ambassadors of gospel hope that can incite radical transformation. Well, Jesus said, as we saw last week, yes, we will be hated. But look up and look out at what all of what God has called us into. Look at this redeemed community that's messy and imperfect, but it's relying on grace. And then it's called to love one another and to serve one another and to sacrificially give to one another. Look at the life transformation and hope and healing that is happening right before your eyes. Look up and see all that God wants to do through you and me and all of us collectively together through a broken people that he has redeemed for a purpose. And so how does God give hope to the, uh, with the Holy Spirit to a weary bunch of disciples? He empowers them with himself. And he gives them a grand mission to take part in. And y'all, I can't help but think of the guys that were just sitting there, hearing this teaching, just kind of taking it all in. Guys like Peter and James and John, who ended up later writing uh, letters that we now have in our New Testament. I mean, Peter was sitting there and he later preached for 10 minutes after the coming of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people were saved in a day. Like the Spirit brought conviction and pointed people towards Jesus and 3,000 were saved. New City, we have the same Spirit today that, we, that was at Pentecost. Do not forget that. And then Peter who was sitting there. He later wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Knowing all this firsthand, being there, like Peter wrote to those who were exiles and struggling, he wrote, remember that he has called you to a holy calling. He's called you into a royal priesthood, like Peter was taking all of this in. And I can't help but think of James, who we've been studying, the book of James, who was sitting there. He, he was fearful and struggling too, just like the rest of them. In sorrow, just kind of listening to Jesus with his shoulders just kind of hunched over, I imagine. And he later wrote in James, the very beginning of James, he wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for when you know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. And then John, who was also sitting there, he later wrote, like, we have Jesus Christ, our advocate. And John spoke in first and second and third John of the forgiveness of sin and living free of sin with confidence. Church, we can be confident that salvation around the world is possible. We can be confident that the power of sin no longer has control over us and that true life change and transformation and healing, it can happen, truly happen. New City Church, may we not lose sight that we have an unshakable hope for the days ahead. But may we not forget that we are desperately in need of the Holy Spirit to help us. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you have sent us a helper of the Holy Spirit that comes and takes residence in our hearts and fuels us with hope that changes us, that brings light into, into darkness, God. God, we pray that you would continue to just lift up our eyes to see, to look up and look out all and see all of what you're doing. God, that we would 
Just take our, you would take our weary souls and you would just give us a zeal and a passion and a burden to see all that you're doing. God, we, we're so thankful for the Holy Spirit's power. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.